If you have any paper money in your in your wallet or your purse, grab a bill and get it out. I promise we're not going to pass the offering plate again. <clears throat> this one that I have, by the way, was found in one of the ladies' bathrooms this morning, and if you can tell me which one, you can have it. <clears throat> okay. We, we have... I see that hand. Okay. Just pull out one bill, any, any bill. You don't have to show it to anyone. You don't have to give it to anyone. Just pull it out. Turn it over to the back. And look at it just about uh, kind of in the middle toward the top. There's four words. What are those four words? In God we trust. In God we trust. Now, all of you knew that was there because it's been there on every bill ever printed since 1966. They started doing it about 1957 on bills. They started in 1938 with coins. So we all know it's there. But have you ever thought about the piercing irony of having those words in that place? A poll conducted in 2003 by USA Today, CNN, and Gallup found that 90% of Americans support having that inscription on U.S. coins and currency. Isn't that encouraging? But what percentage of Americans, or far more to the point, what percentage of professing Christians actually demonstrate by their actions that they trust more in the one that those words are talking about than the paper that the words are printed on. We're going to look this morning about what the book of Proverbs and a few other passages in the Bible have to say about wealth. When men refer to wealth, what they're talking about in essence is the currency of well-being. They're talking about that which can be exchanged between men that represents well-being that which determines whether men are blessed or not blessed. And there are far more people who see that green piece of paper as the currency of well-being than who see well-being as God defines it. By God's reckoning, money is a useful means for representing the relative value of goods and services exchanged between human beings, but it has no It is no measure whatsoever of well-being. Money can either be a lousy, counterfeit substitute for eternal treasure, or it can be one of many useful instruments that God has given us to invest in eternal treasure. Which is it for you? It cannot be both in God we trust and in this we trust. It cannot be both. Jesus said in Matthew 6:24 No man can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will cling to one and despise the other You cannot serve God and mammon and mammon means stuff material possessions You can't have both You cannot trust in both what if, uh, what if Jesus really means what he says? Now we're going to look next week at what Proverbs tells us about caring for the poor and downtrodden, and hopefully the week after that, at the issue of giving. So I want to explain up front, the reason I'm not going to devote much 
focus this morning on those two issues is because they're going to each get dealt with separately. So please bear that in mind. Because it's definitely not because those two are not central to this issue. They are, absolutely. Now, what is, what is real wealth? Let's uh, start there. God explains this to us. Proverbs 16:16 16, 16 says, How much better it is to get wisdom than gold. And to get understanding is to be chosen above silver. In Proverbs 8, verses 17 to 22, God says that it's, it's wisdom speaking, and, and wisdom says of itself, of herself, Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even pure gold, and my yield than choicest silver. Now, if the wealth that's being spoken of in those passages is better than gold, then it has to be a whole different category of wealth than gold. Because in the ancient Near East, gold was the pinnacle. It was the top of the totem pole when it came to what was valued. It was the the most valuable form of anything from a material perspective. In Proverbs 16.16, wealth is wisdom, wisdom itself. And in Proverbs 8, wealth is the fruit or the yield of wisdom. It's what wisdom results in or produces. So both godly wisdom and the outcome of godly wisdom are treated in, in Scripture as being wealth, real wealth. And Proverbs 8.22 makes a very powerful statement. It says that this wealth was possessed by God before he created anything. In fact, if you look at all a bunch of the verses that follow that one, it's, it, goes, it, it talks about things that he has created. And, and none of that existed before this wealth existed that was possessed by God. Uh, a wealth that existed before any physical thing existed certainly can't be found in any physical thing, can it? And just as this wealth existed in eternity past, as one of the very attributes of God's own nature called wisdom, Proverbs 8.18 tells us that it is enduring wealth. God had it in eternity past, and it will last into eternity future. Wisdom itself and all the fruit of wisdom, everything wisdom does and brings about, constitute real and everlasting wealth. And even this side of eternity, it's a kind of wealth that you can spend all you want and never have less of. You can share it extravagantly, and you never run out, because it proceeds from the very character of God. Now, wisdom is not the only thing that the Bible calls true wealth, but all the other things that it calls wealth are inextricably connected with wisdom. In Psalm 19, it's a very well-known psalm, David says that the Word of God is more valuable than gold, sweeter than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. Proverbs 31 says, An excellent wife. A wife who is wise is worth more than jewels. Proverbs 
22 verse 1 says, A good name is more to be desired than great riches. Favor is better than silver and gold. A good name is the reputation that a man gets because he is wise. These are the fruits, the fruits of wisdom. So what is biblical wisdom? Uh, well, as we saw when we studied it in the first message of this whole Proverbs series, biblical wisdom is the God-given skill to think and speak and act and make decisions that are in keeping with the character of God. To boil that down to a simpler statement, biblical wisdom is the skill to display who God is by what you do. To display who God is by what you do. Now, how do you get this great wealth called wisdom? Well, if the essence of true wealth is the wisdom that comes from God, the question is, of course, how do you get wisdom? We saw again way back in the first message on this series, I'm just going to recap it briefly, that the starting point to obtaining wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So you start on the path toward obtaining wisdom by fearing God, and what you end up with is the knowledge of God, and that constitutes, that. that's when you have wisdom, when you know God. Proverbs 15.33 says the fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom. It's the, it's the content, it's the, the foundation that brings us to wisdom. And then it says, and before honor comes humility. I believe humility and the fear of the Lord are used there synonymously. So you fear God. You have to humble yourself to do that. God has to humble you. You fear God leads you to the knowledge of God, and that's when you are wise. It's very simple in terms of the the essence of it. Now, here's a, a very interesting verse. Proverbs 22, verse 4. And I modified this a little in in this translation to to kind of very woodenly reflect the Hebrew. Uh, The reward of humility, the fear of the Lord, riches and honor and life. Now, I crossed out the word and in the first part of that because it's not in the Hebrew and I don't think it's implied because in the rest of the verse you have explicit and where it says riches and honor and life. My point in doing that is to show, is to to indicate, I believe humility is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is humility as God sees those things. They're, they're, They're talking about the same issue. The humility that matters to God is that we humble ourselves before Him and honor Him as God. Okay. So the essence of the fear of God is humility before God. Humble submission is the only reasonable response of the one who fears God. That means the one who acknowledges God alone is the source of all blessing and all curse. Every other thing that we think of as a source of blessing or curse is really an instrument. God is the source. The only way you'll ever be blessed instead of cursed is to fall down before God in submission, come to Him on His terms, not yours, and honor Him as God. And of course, we've seen over and over, that's exactly what mankind did not do when they were exposed to, when they were clearly exposed to God's invisible nature, His eternal power, and His divine attributes through what God had made. Men suppressed that truth, they refused to honor Him as God or give thanks. They would not humble themselves before God. 
But that's exactly what a man must do in order to know God and to obtain thereby the wisdom that God calls real wealth. Now, if wisdom and everything associated with it is the essence of real wealth, and if the way to acquire wisdom is as these verses present it to be, then the path to wealth, (laughs) the path to getting really rich, the activity, the course of action that brings you the only wealth that's worth having is very straightforward. Humble yourself before God and get to know Him. You fear God, which leads to the knowledge of God, and that is what makes you wise. And man, when you have that wisdom that comes from Him, that's when you're wealthy. Now, Proverbs has at least as much to say about uh, what wealth isn't as it does about what wealth is. And as with pretty much everything else about the world's understanding of things that matter, (laughs) this godless culture has it completely wrong. Real wealth is not about money and stuff. Luke 12, verse 15, Jesus said, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has abundance does his life consist of his possessions. It's not what life's about. Proverbs 18, I love this passage. Proverbs 18, 10 and 11. The name of Yahweh is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. That's real security. And then here's the contrast. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his own imagination. The only real security that exists is the character, the name of God. The righteous man knows that and he finds God to be his strong tower. The rich man, on the other hand, looks for security in possessions. And the punchline in verse 11 is that that high wall that protects that rich man's strong city is a figment of his own imagination. It has no reality. And because it has no reality, it cannot satisfy. And that's what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 5.10. He says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. Money and stuff cannot satisfy. Money and stuff deceive and puff up. Proverbs 28.11, The rich man is wise in his own eyes, but the poor who has understanding sees right through him. Proverbs 22.4, The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Now, I put that positive statement in there to contrast with the first one because I want you to see the reversal that occurs in those two verses. Fake riches bring unfounded pride, but true riches start with humility. There's something that we must not miss in all that we've seen and are going to see this morning. The path to blessing always starts and ends with the pursuit of God. It's not wrong to desire blessing. That's, it's all over Scripture. But you'll never get blessing by pursuing blessing. You get blessing by pursuing God. The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord, riches, honor, and life. Now, I want to get real practical about the pursuit of fake wealth versus the way we obtain real wealth. The Bible has a whole lot more to say about this than we want to admit. 
And the reason we don't like to admit it is is because what the Bible tells us demands that we take a radically different approach to money and possessions than we want to take. It seems very, very risky to us to take a biblical approach. I want to start with the question, what do you save money for? Pardon the dangling preposition. Is it sinful to save money? Let's, let's kind of back up and start with that. Is it sinful to save money? If you take at face value what some preachers and Christian writers seem to be saying, you might come away with the impression that if you have more money than you need for food and shelter and clothing today, you have too much. That extra money should be burning a hole in your pocket until you give it away to somebody who actually needs it, because you don't. And what they're saying, in effect, is that all of life is supposed to match up with what we see in Exodus 16 during the 40 years of the wilderness wanderings when Israel was fed with manna from heaven every day and each man was allowed, each person was allowed to gather only enough for one day. And if he gathered more and tried to hang on to it till the next day, it would spoil before the next day. So it was useless to him. And he gathered a double portion on the sixth day and that didn't spoil, that was a miracle. And it was available to him for this, the day of rest, the seventh day. Is that how it's supposed to work for God's people in every age? Is that how it's supposed to work for you now? That you're supposed to have just enough for today and not anymore? No. That is not the way the rest of the Bible talks about how God provides. In fact, if it were, pretty much everything that the Bible says about sowing and reaping, you know, planting and harvesting would be, it would be pointless. You are supposed to save some of what you earn. And let me demonstrate that. Proverbs 27, 23 to 27 says, Know well the, the condition of your flocks and pay attention to your herds, for riches are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. When the grass disappears, the new growth is seen and the herbs of the mountains are gathered in. The lambs will be for your clothing. The goats will bring the price of a field. There will be goat's milk enough for your food, for the food of your household and for the sustenance of your maidens. Not only does a farmer have to gather in new growth, he has to care for and preserve what he has obtained by the fruit of his previous labors so he'll have enough to clothe and feed his household over a period of time. Proverbs 6 Verses 6 to 11. I'm just going to read verses uh, 6 through 8 here. Go to the ant, you sluggard. (laughs) Observe its ways and be wise. It has no commander, overseer, or ruler, yet it prepares its food in the summer. It gathers at the harvest what it will eat. The ant here is pictured as an example of hard work and wise management of resources. See, a fool sleeps when it's time to be working hard, but even a lowly ant has enough sense to work hard at harvest time to gather the food that will be needed later. It prepares food in the summer that's supposed to last through the winter. Human farmers have to plow and sow seed each year during planting season. They have to irrigate their crop through the growing season. Then they have to harvest and sell and store crop It's a whole lot of work all the time. But the focus in both of those passages that we just looked at is really on the contrast between hard work and laziness. But they're relevant to what we're talking about. 
Because both of those and many other passages make it clear that a wise man is mindful not just of today's needs or requirements, but of needs in the future as well. And he's mindful not just of his own needs, but of the needs of others. We'll talk more about that in the next couple of weeks. Now, there are, there are many really great built-in correctives <laughs> to foolishness in a mostly ag- agricultural economy, uh, like that which existed in Old Testament times. There are common-sense correctives that have become long forgotten in our urban, industrialized, affluent economy. See, the normal agricultural cycle for a farmer is pretty much a one-year proposition. The farmer plants a particular kind of seed during planting season each year, and then he harvests it in the later season when it's ripe. And so he knows that what he harvests has to last until the next harvest, right? It's common sense. You can't get away from it. That means he and his family can't consume their entire portion of the harvest all at once. Saving for the future is entirely biblical when it's done on God's terms. Without it, life in an agrarian economy would be impossible. When it's done as God intended, the Bible commends those as wise who save enough material provision for more than just the very near term. But there are two critically important questions that we have to answer in light of all that the Bible tells us about gathering and holding on to material provision. And those two questions are, first, for what are you, are you saving? And secondly, for how long? For what and for how long? Are you saving for a rainy day? Now, a farmer hears that statement and laughs because to a farmer, a rainy day is a really good day. But we say we're saving for a rainy day, and what we mean is we're, we're anticipating trying to, to cover an unexpected expense or an unanticipated lapse in our ability to earn income. That could be an unexpected illness that's sustained for a while or any other kind of gap in earning ability. Now, that seems at face value to be a wise and reasonable approach in light of passages like the one we just saw, right? After all, there's only a very brief window in the annual cycle for a farmer where anybody pays him anything for what he's doing. Right? And that has to last until the next time that event occurs. But what's, what is it that's really at issue in our approach to saving? Or at least in the approach that we wish we had. <laughs> is it to save for a rainy day? Or is it to save for a few thousand rainy days in a row? I believe it grieves God deeply to hear his children use terms like financial security. For the one whose trust is God, financial security is what's called an oxymoron. Those two words don't belong in the same phrase. Money and stuff will never make you secure. They'll never make anybody secure, even the people that are convinced that they will. The only security you have is a father who keeps all his promises who also owns and controls everything. That's real security. That is unassailable security. There's another phrase, financial independence. You hear that a lot from Christian financial counselors. 
But many Christians don't reckon with what that phrase means. It's a, actually a pretty straightforward phrase, and it means what it says. Independence. It's talking about freedom from dependence on God. If I have enough money to be pretty sure I can get through losing my job for a long time, then I don't have to worry about whether God will come through if I have to go through that kind of experience, do I? I have it covered. God wants you and me to understand something very clearly. Freedom from having to depend on God for security and well-being is and always will be a mirage, an illusion. And by the way, the notion that your rainy day isn't supposed to impose on any of your fellow believers is not a biblical notion. God does not intend for his people to structure out the possibility that we will need each other. He created his church to be interdependent, not independent. Just look at Acts chapter 4. One of the most exciting things that was happening in the early church was that the people of God readily and humbly accepted their dependence on each other. They didn't consider it a curse. They didn't consider it an imposition. They considered it a blessed situation that they had each other and that they were working together. They were so focused on the goal of furthering the kingdom of God that their possessions didn't even matter to them. They just needed to get through each day together. Are you saving for a rainy day? A few thousand rainy days? Are you saving for an easy finish? Are you saving in the hope that you can retire in leisure? This is what my kids refer to as a third world problem. But it's a pervasive one. Even those who have no apparent way to get to a comfortable retirement often wish that they could and agonize over how they might. Isn't it the American ideal, after all, to make and stash enough wealth that you can retire while you're still vigorous and do whatever floats your boat for another 20 or 30 years? Wouldn't that be great? But here again... uh, The agricultural setting of the Old Testament provides some valuable clarification. A typical farmer or rancher in Old Testament times wouldn't even have a context for thinking in terms of extended retirement. He'd never consider trying to stash enough of the produce of his crops to get his family through 20 or 30 years of not having to work. And you know why he would never consider it? Because the grain he harvested at the beginning of those 20 or 30 years would spoil long before he got to the end of that period of time. I did a little research on a couple of government department of agriculture websites and I found, found out some things I didn't know before. Did you know that unless you put harvested grain in a silo that is airtight and that is carefully temperature and humidity controlled, Many types of grain, especially softer grains, will spoil very quickly due to a combination of bacterial decay, fermentation, mold, fungi, and insects. There are a whole lot of enemies to the preservation of a crop. Some grains spoil within a matter of months, not years. And as you might guess, the technology to produce hermetically sealed 
temperature and humidity controlled silos did not exist in the ancient Near East. So even if you had a ridiculously large harvest in a given year, the notion of hanging on to enough of it to cover a couple of decades was absolutely preposterous. (laughs) By the way, that information tells me that something amazingly miraculous happened during the seven years that Joseph stored crops to feed Egypt and all the surrounding nations during a sustained famine. The fact is there's absolutely nothing in the Bible that indicates that God intended for his people to be idle and self-absorbed in their old age. Our culture's textbook concept of retirement as the extended vacation that's owed to us because we've worked our tails off for several decades is unrecognizable to the writers of Scripture and is not endorsed by the God who inspired what those men wrote. One dear missionary friend of mine, who many of you know, has often been asked how he manages to get through the crazy intensity of speaking engagements and lunches and dinners and meetings and obligatory travel while he's here in the States to rest and then goes right back to the heavy workload that he faces in the the mission field without ever actually resting. You know what his consistent answer is? I'll rest when I get to heaven. Until then, God has stuff for me to do. Another dear brother in this church said to me when I first started in this role at CBC, he said, my prayer for you, Tom, is that when you reach the end of your life, you'll be spent all used up for Christ. Under my breath, I was thinking, gee, thanks from now on. Keep your prayers to yourself. (laughs) But that brother had it exactly, exactly right. We're here for a purpose. We're here to be slaves of righteousness and of God. And guess what? Slaves don't get retirement plans. Are you looking to save money for a rainy day? Are you looking to save money for an easy finish? Or maybe you're looking to save money for an easier life for your kids. Again, that's what's known as a third world problem, that most people in the world and many in this room have little expectation that they could accomplish even if they tried. But again, many in this room see that as the ideal situation and would love to be able to pull it off. To leave their children an inheritance that would free them from a lot of the financial stresses that they, the parents, have had to face or maybe are facing right now. At first glance, that sounds like a loving and unselfish goal, doesn't it? What does God have to say about it? He actually answers the question. Proverbs 20.21, he says, An inheritance gained hurriedly at the beginning will not be blessed in the end. Let me ask you this. How much energy and effort should you expend on handing to your kids something that God promises He will not bless? Is that a confusing statement? In his excellent book, and this is one, guys, you have to get this book and read it. I don't often say that about books, but other than this one, of course. Randy Alcorn, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. 
Craig Nelson gave that to me a long time ago, and it sat for a long time, and then this message was coming around so the last couple of weeks. I, I, I got into it. It's powerful stuff. It's very, very biblical. In that book, uh, he quotes this verse, and then he quotes some some folks that speak from experience. First one is Andrew Carnegie, one of the greatest business tycoons of the American Industrial Revolution. On the topic of leaving a big inheritance to children, Carnegie put it this way. He said, the almighty dollar bequeathed to a child is an almighty curse. No man has the right to handicap his son with such a great burden as great wealth. He must face the question squarely, will my fortune be safe with my boy and will my boy be safe with my fortune? Henry Ford said, fortunes tend toward self-destruction by destroying those who inherit them. And Randy Alcorn himself, who's spent many, many years studying and teaching on this matter of what the Bible has to say about fake wealth and real wealth, has this to say about leaving a bunch of money to your children when you die. He said, I'll make a statement that may seem incredible, but I firmly believe it. If I were the devil and I wanted to ruin a group of Christians... I'd try to get their parents to leave them large amounts of money. That's how much I'm convinced of the dangers and temptations of unearned wealth. Unearned wealth. Everything I've learned over the years has convinced me that in most cases, children who inherit wealth would have been far better off if the money had been put in a burn pile and torched. And then he says, I don't recommend that strategy, but I seriously believe that statement is true. And here's the strategy he does recommend. He says, for those who come into substantial wealth in this life, the challenge is that they should very intentionally invest it in eternity before they die, rather than handing it all over to their kids. He says, leaving more to God's kingdom and less to financially independent children is not only an act of love toward God, it is an act of love for your children. Put it this way. Which is the better legacy for you to leave your kids? The example of investing every resource God gives you in His kingdom? Or the illusion of building up security and control this side of heaven by having lots of financial padding. Which of those two is the better legacy to give to your kids? We really don't have to agonize over that very much because God said this, an inheritance gained hurriedly at the beginning will not be blessed in the end. Now, all that's kind of weighty and you know guilt-trippy stuff again. I want to say this, it is about the heart, not the balance sheet. This is a a marvelous passage that we read at the beginning. Two things, Proverbs 30, verses 7 to 9. Two things I ask of thee, do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. Lest I be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. It's exceedingly important to recognize in that passage what it is that's threatened by having either too much or too little 
material prosperity. What's at risk is our heart toward God. Not because it should be. It shouldn't even be connected with material prosperity, but that's the way it often plays out because of our sinful hearts. The writer of that great passage is in effect saying to God, Lord, please don't let material provision distract me from you. Give me just enough so I don't profane your name by stealing, but not so much that I lose sight of my constant dependence upon you alone for well-being. His concern is to protect his own heart toward God. Is that what governs your approach toward money? Now, there are some right here in our local body who are facing very tough financial struggles and have unmet financial obligations. And we as a body need to be very proactive about helping one another so those struggles don't sidetrack anyone from devotion to God. There are really great opportunities for the body to step up to the plate and demonstrate that it, that it loves God more than money, right? But the other temptation in this passage is, I believe, the bigger threat. It's a very, very real temptation for most of the people in this room because the reality is that for most people in this world, overwhelmingly, we in suburban America are ridiculously wealthy. For most of us, the critical question is not how can we get what we need. It's how much of what we have could we do without to better further God's agenda. We're going to look at that particular question in a lot more detail in the next couple of weeks. But we need to give a lot of thought to the impact that money and possessions have on our relationship with God. It's important to bear in mind that the very strong tendency of our flesh is to reduce righteousness to rules. And then, of course, to apply those rules far more vigorously to other people than we do to ourselves. When we do reduce righteousness to rules, we miss the mark every time. And that's why when God talks about giving in the New Testament, he never identifies how much in terms of actual dollars or income percentage. He says, give what you can give cheerfully. Proverbs, and that, that implies that your heart is right. Proverbs 30, again, this, this passage, the food that is my portion. How much is that? You notice that the writer of those verses does not nail down an income level or even a range of income that would keep him from either of those two extreme responses. We at least want God to give us a number that's indexed on current per capita gross domestic product or maybe average annual income for Americans. We need something to hang our hat on, right? But God doesn't do it that way because if he did, we'd be walking by sight instead of by faith. And this is about the heart, not the externals. Now, this whole lesson from God's word gets seriously off the rails when we start fretting about how much the other guy should be making or keeping. There's far too much concern in the body of Christ over who has a particular level of material prosperity in any given form. Does that brother need a house that big? Does that guy over there, shouldn't he sell his Beamer and just be satisfied with the Toyota Camry? 
But brothers and sisters, that's a really dangerous mindset. I've been blessed to know believers who have given away hundreds and even thousands of times more than they have kept for themselves. And they may look like they're doing pretty well on a relative scale, but they smoke me when it comes to their generosity. See, it's dangerous for us to be worrying about this for our neighbor instead of for us. Let this be about your your accountability to God, not your brother's accountability to you. Now, there may be a time when God intends to use you to lovingly challenge your brother or sister whose priorities are clearly messed up when it comes to money and possessions. But there better be no self-righteousness in the approach that you take with that brother. You have to handle it prayerfully and in love and in humility. Now, how do you know if your own heart is right when it comes to the priority you place on money and stuff? Well, here are two acid test questions as I see them, based on what we see in Scripture. First, do you treat money and possessions as a tool to further the kingdom of God or as a source of security and blessing for yourself? And those two approaches are mutually exclusive. Second, how do you respond when your plans for money and stuff don't work out? We looked at this passage a little while ago. It's, it's powerful. Here's the heart of the man who trusts in money and stuff instead of in God. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with his income. So the first thing is he's discontented. And he'll never find contentedness in money. He'll never have enough of it to satisfy. Another thing we see there is that he hoards riches. He just keeps piling it up again because it's not enough to satisfy. And he thinks if he keeps getting more, he'll hit that point where it is enough to satisfy. And that never happens because God doesn't let it happen. See, for that man, the purpose of money is to serve self. It's interesting that his stomach is full, but his stomach is upset. He can't sleep because he's tied up in knots. He's anxious. That's what happens when you trust in a counterfeit. And there's a stark contrast to that when you look at the heart of the man whose trust is the Lord. Now, I've gone to this passage before. It's one that just blows me away. Habakkuk 3, verses 17 and 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines... Though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord and I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and He has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. Have you guys ever seen a mountain goat in action? Debbie and I were on a rafting excursion with the youth group years ago on the Arkansas River in Colorado. And as we were going through one of the more calm stretches of the river, out of the corner of my eye, I caught a mother and baby mountain goat on a a rock face that was about this steep and, and covered with rock. And for the few moments as we passed by that spot, my attention was transfixed on them because what I saw was astounding. They skipped along that very steep, very rocky slope as if it was flat, smooth ground. And not once did they even slip a little bit. 
I don't know what kind of gyroscope God gave to those critters. But yeah. But to me it looked miraculous. That's what God does for those whose trust is Him. He makes our feet like hinds feet and places us on His high places. If you have a bunch of money, think prayerfully and often about how you can put it to use to further God's agenda while He still gives you that opportunity because that opportunity is short. And considering the level of material wealth that most of us possess in suburban America, that challenge needs to be taken seriously by most of the people in this room, including me. And I guarantee you, I need my cage rattled on this issue. I worry far too much about money instead of being concerned with how that money can be a tool for God's agenda. If you don't have much of what the world calls wealth, if you're barely making it from paycheck to paycheck, if you're out of work, still trying to figure out how to deal with the debts that you can't pay, God says to you, fear not. Your well-being doesn't come from the control you have over your financial situation. Read Matthew 6, 25 to 34. Trust that God knows exactly how to take care of his own. And guys, he never, never fails to do so. Never. Be careful how you manage what he's given to you. And take things one day at a time. Don't burn yourself out agonizing over how to get more money. It's just pointless. Whether you have much or little, God's call to you is to humble yourself before him. Set aside every fear and every dependence except him. Trust in Him so that you may know Him more fully. Then you will be staggeringly wealthy. Father, we come to you with the words of the psalmist. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. Lord, make that the content of our hearts. Make us unwilling, Lord, to be satisfied with the crummy imitation that this world has to offer so that we may find that our wealth is your wisdom and our life is you and there is no other. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.